All right. My person is St. Augustine. I'm starting with this picture. I love this piece of art. Um, it is, we have St. Augustine. It's very, uh, quality is pretty bad. But here we have the Latin word veritas, which is truth. And so in this, you have the truth of God illuminating Augustine's mind, which lights the affections of his heart. And in it, you see him writing, writing. He did a lot of writing against many heretics after his conversion. Under here, you can't really read, uh, read their names. Plagian, Plagius is one of them, as he wrote against Plagianism. Plagiarism. But uh, I wanted to start with that. I love that piece of artwork. Overview. He was born November 13th. 354 to August 28th, 430. His father was a pagan, but was converted later in life, and his mother was a devout Christian. And we're going to learn more about her. More her name is Monica. Now we're going to go through the biography, his biography from his confessions. So Augustine wrote what he calls his confessions. And what's really cool is Augustine was um, one of, if not the first, person to really write about their own life, like from an autobiographical standpoint, apart from like Paul writes about himself a little bit briefly in um, his epistles we read, but Augustine set out to write a confessions, an autobiography, and Augustine was a genius, and even in the title of his confessions, you see this, he wrote and entitled the confessions because this autobiography is one, an ongoing prayer of confession of sin of his life unto God, but it is also a confession of his faith. Um, so, I'm going to walk through each chapter and kind of explain his life. This is uh, what uh, the translation that I have, the paragraphs that I was talking about. So, chapter 1. He's, is the confessions of the greatness and unsearchableness of God, of God's mercies in infancy and boyhood and human willfulness, of his own sins and idleness, abuse of his studies, and of God's gift up to his 15th year. So right off the bat of the confessions, Augustine just breaks out in doxology. All throughout the book, he's filled with so much praise and just wonderful passages, making so much of who God is. Um, and so right away, he in his autobiography, he talks about his life as an infant and he doesn't from observing infants he talks about basically total depravity and original sin and how you see that even in infants as they cry and want and are jealous with other babies and he's like i know that i was just like them even though i don't know that i what i was like as an infant um and so he talks about early stages of sin even as an infant um and then up through his boyhood through 15th year he neglected his school when his parents, well, he was a bad kid, would always be disciplined and whipped at school, and it's very uh, relatable. I was never whipped at school, but um, <laughs> he did not like his school. He did not delight in studying of Greek and the languages as he was supposed to, um, or mathematics. He didn't want anything to do with that. And so ongoing, we see his sin. He brings out his sin in his infancy, and in his boyhood, and uh, his neglect of school. Chapter 2, we see further, uh, further ills of idleness developed in his 16th year, evils of ill society which betrayed him into theft. This is one of my favorite sections in uh, his confessions. He recounts this story when he was 16 years old in a specific sin of stealing fruit from a pear tree with his friends. And so the point of this, 
again, is bringing out the sinfulness, the sinful nature of humans and the sin which just infected his life. And I'm going to read different accounts of this story. It's kind of broken up in different pieces, but I hope it gives you a, a full picture of this story of the pear tree. Um. <clears throat> Theft is punished by the law, O Lord, and the law written in our heart, in the hearts of men, which iniquity itself effaces not. For what thief will abide in, will abide a thief, not even a rich thief, one stealing through want? Yet I lusted to thieve, and did it, compelled by no hunger nor poverty, but through a cloyness of well-doing and a pamperness of iniquity. For I stole that of which I had enough, and much better, nor cared I to enjoy what I stole, but joyed in the theft of sin itself. A pear tree there was near out vineyard, <clears throat> laden with fruit, tempting neither for color nor taste. To shake and rob this, some lewd young fellows of us went late one night, having according to our pestilent customs, prolonged our sports in the streets to then, and took huge loads, not for our eating, but to fling to the very hogs, having only tasted them. And this, but to do what we likely only because it was misliked. <clears throat> behold my heart, O God, behold my heart, which thou hadst pity upon in the bottom of the bottomless pit. Now, behold, let my heart tell thee what it, ought, what it sought there, that I should be gratuitously uh, evil, having no temptation to ill but the ill itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved mine own fault, not that for which I was faulty, but my fault itself. Foul soul, falling from thy firmament to utter destruction, not seeking aught through the shame, but the shame itself. He goes on to say, What then did wretched I so love in thee, thou left of mine, thou deep of darkness, in that sixteenth year of my age? Lovely thou were not, because thou wert theft. But art thou anything that thus I speak to thee? Fair were the pears we stole, because they were thy creation. Thou fairest of all, creator of all. Thou good God, God, the sovereign good, and my true God, true good. Fair were those pears, but not them did my wretched soul desire. For I had store of better, and those I gathered only that I might steal. For when gathered, I flung them away, my only feast therein being my own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy. For aught of those pears came within my mouth, what sweetened it was the sin. And now, O Lord my God, I inquire what in that theft delighted me, and behold, it hath no loveliness. I mean, not so much... <coughs> I mean, not such loveliness as in justice and wisdom, nor such as in the mind and in memory and senses and animal life of man, nor yet as the stars are glorious and beautiful in their orbs, or the earth or sea full of every life, replacing by its birth that which decayeth, nigh, nor even that false and shadowy beauty which belongeth to deceiving vices. So, basically to summarize, uh, he goes on to say, him and a group of his friends went and stole pears from somebody's vineyard, and in their stealing of pears, they did not do it because they really desired the pears in themselves. He says the pears were not even that pleasing to look at in the eye, and they really didn't taste good. And he said they had pears in store of their own, but they went to steal the pears, not to benefit from the pears, but for the sin in and of itself. And so we see here Augustine, his insight into the nature of, of human sinful nature. So often we sin because... Uh, for the sake of sinning itself, we delight in sin. And he goes on to say, talk about uh, 
his friendships and how um, if he were by himself, he would not have gone and stolen these pears, but running with the gang of friends, how that influenced him to do that as well. Um, and so I love this story for many reasons. Um, first, like I highlighted, it shows the depravity of the human heart and how we are at enmity with God by nature and um, delight in sinning for sin's sake. And because just as he stole the pears not to eat themselves, but he threw them away to pigs um, and the influence of friends. But what I love about this story, too, is Augustine in his writings, it's kind of harder to understand because of the language barrier. But really, Augustine wrote to the common man. And in this story, he really gets at all of our hearts because each and every one of us can identify with something so seemingly small like stealing pears out of from a vineyard of somebody who had many trees, many fruit, it seems like such a sinful or such a small act of just stealing, and yet Augustine paints of how wretched this is, and it relates to each and every one of us who have, I'm sure, done something similar to this, like when I was young, stealing candy out of a candy store. So small and seemingly innocent, but yet it really shows the depravity of our hearts. So here Augustine relates it to all of all of us. <coughs> and here we see the genius of Augustine as well. There's much more to this pear uh, tree story that I won't read now. Um, but he gives hints, leading you back to Genesis. And so as he's talking about stealing the fruit of the tree and sin, he's, your mind goes to Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind as Adam and Eve stole from the tree. And then Augustine goes on to say how just as um, he stole from this tree and was dead in his sin, he was saved yet under another tree, pointing to the tree of Calvary that Christ was crucified on. Let's move on to, oh, here's another art piece uh, depicting when he was stealing the tr uh, fruit out of a vineyard. So now the life of Augustine continues. Augustine's re uh, resided in Carthage from his 17th year to his 19th. Um, <clears throat> And here he continues in sin. He loves theater and shows, and he advances in his studies, and he pursues philosophy and uh, seeks wisdom and understanding, um, but has a distaste for Scripture, seeks us apart from God. And this led him to um, a group called uh, Mankeism. Um, Mankeys were Gnostics. They believed in the distinction between the spiritual and physical realm, but all things physical are evil. So this proved to be a major hindrance to Augustine when before and in his process of converting to Christianity because he could not conceive of Christ incarnate because everything incarnate, everything in the world, physical, is evil. So he could not, he rejected Christ and God in Christ, Christ as our mediator, both God and man, because he could not see man, God becoming man is a good thing because all material is evil. That's what Gnosticism believed. That is the Mankian cult. Um, so, uh, around this time, too, uh, Augustine's mother, Monica, who is a devout Christian, was grieving over the life of Augustine as she sees Augustine full pursuing sin, pursuing the lust of the flesh. He openly talks about his sexually immoral life, clearly um, at enmity with God, and uh, Monica, his mother, is aware of this, and so he, she is grieving, and 
continue in prayer. Augustine talks about the faithfulness of his mom in prayer so much, pleading for his salvation throughout his whole life as he's running away, pursuing the loss of this world. Um, and Monica has a vision that um, one day Augustine will be saved and that she will not die until Augustine becomes a Christian. <clears throat> And this is answered through the bish through bishop known as St. Ambrose, which we'll talk about later. Let's continue in his life. Chapter 4, Augustine's life from 19 to 20. He is a Manchian, and he's now seducing others to the same heresy. He's preaching Manchism to others. And uh, early on in his life, he loses a dear friend of his, who was a convert, and reflected, in this chapter he reflects on the grief of loss. He says... Um, he speaks of just grieving, 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 grieving over the loss of his friend to the point of where uh, he felt that his grieving was for the sake of grieving. He felt more like grieving than grieving for his friend um, and the sin in that. Talks about real and unreal friendships and <clears throat> cannot rightly... He cannot rightly, though God has given him great talents, understand who God is because he has wrong notions and view of who God, the true God is. Chapter 5, Augustine delivered from Manchism by shewing the ignorance of the Manchies on those things wherein they profess to have divine knowledge. So, um, you have to forgive me because I'm not super... I don't understand this completely. It's not as fresh in my memory. But basically, in Manchism as well... They claimed, like, super high knowledge of divine matters, and it was all, like, an intellectual, it was just high intellectual religion, and that's why Augustine fit into it so much, because he was genius. But Augustine was full of questions. He was always asking questions about these divine insights, which the Manchians claim that they have and pursue, but they kind of just, like, always beat around the bush with their answers, and um, Augustine wasn't satisfied with that, and so... Um, <clears throat> he said that they were ignorant, and so this is where he begins to turn away from Manchism because he has all these questions, but these Manchies cannot actually answer the questions which he's asking. So now he's guided to Rome and Milan where, his, uh, where he hears St. Ambrose, uh, the preaching of St. Ambrose. Uh, Augustine was a... His job was in rhetoric. He was a masterful speaker in language, and he hears of this great preacher in Rome, named St. Ambrose. And so he comes to listen to the preaching of St. Ambrose just to kind of learn from his rhetoric because he's attracting great crowds, but St. Ambrose is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and this leads to his salvation. <clears throat> Chapter 6. <clears throat> this is pretty funny. Um, Monica, Augustine's mother, follows Augustine to... Mylan. I can only imagine, like, kind of a mom that clings to their son too, so much. Like, I can kind of be annoyed if, like, my mom shows up to something that I'm at, <clears throat> let alone travels across the country to follow Augustine. Because that's what she did. Because she heard that he was at, like, with St. Saint, Saint Ambrose, and this is, like, bringing her so much joy. And so she follows Augustine, and she arrives at Mylan where um, <clears throat> Augustine is. She loves St. Ambrose and obeys him, and St. Ambrose loves Augustine's mom. And here around this point, Augustine gradually abandons 
his errors of Manchism and his other beliefs, yet not a Christian, and um, God brings another friend along him whose name is Olypius. And Augustine debates with himself and his friends about the mode of life, his <clears throat> inveterate sin, and dread of judgment. So now we see Augustine beginning, the Lord beginning to work in his heart to turn him towards Christianity. <clears throat> Chapter 7. Augustine is still not a Christian. 31 years old. Gradually, that is incredible to me. He wrote so much and wasn't even converted until so late in life. <clears throat> Anyways, he gradually uh, extricated from his heirs, still continually turning away, um, but still had a material conception of God, rejects the Mankin heresy, but cannot altogether embrace the doctrine of the church, which led to... <clears throat> which led to find in the Platonists the seeds of the doctrine of the divinity of the word, but not of his humiliation. Talking about Christ. So Augustine, again, is turning away from Mankian heresy, and the Lord used uh, Platonism, the Platonists, to, who believed, who rejected kind of a just material view of the world, um, who put an emphasis on that there is a God, and there is purpose in life, though not all their conclusions are biblical. Yet God uses Platonist philosophy to kind of uh, work in Augustine's mind to accept the divinity of Christ, but not yet his humiliation. Hence, he obtains clear notions of God's majesty, but not knowing Christ to be the mediator, he remains estranged from him. But all his doubts of Christ and the gospel are removed by the study of holy scriptures, especially St. Paul. Chapter 8. <clears throat> Augustine's 32 years old now, and this is where he's finally converted. Um, he consults a man named Simplicianus's. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is definitely not how you say that. Um, who's the father of uh, who's the father of Ambrose? <laughs> and, and he consults this guy, and from him Here's the history of the conversion of another name, of another guy named Victorinus. And so after hearing this, uh, the conversion of this man, he longs to devote himself entirely to God, but is still mastered by his old habits of sin. And this is a really sweet section in the Confessions. Augustine now desires to be saved. He desires God. He wants to be a Christian. It, but is enslaved to his sin, enslaved to his lusts. And he turns to wisdom, he turns to philosophy, he turns to every, everywhere he can go to seek relief from this burden of sin and this dread of judgment. And he, he wants Christ, but he seems like he cannot attain him until, or wants God, and he cannot attain him until he understands Christ in the gospel. And he talks over and over again in this area of the power of Christ to free him. He says, only the power of Christ could free me from the burdens. I turn everywhere for relief, but only Christ could free me from my burdens of sin. And so that was really sweet. Um, and his conversion story goes like this. During this time when he's contemplating um, and contemplating Christianity and is ready to devote himself to it, he hears a voice from heaven, and it, he describes it as a uh, the sound of like a child's voice say, tole lege, tole lege, which is in Latin means take up and read. 
take up and read. And upon there's a, the scriptures were sitting next to him, and he opened it up, and by God's providence turned to Romans 13, which I believe is Romans 13, which reads, Make no provisions of the flesh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And upon reading that, he was converted. <coughs> chapter 9, this is the final chapter. Augustine determines now to devote his life to God and to abandon his professions of rhetoric. Quietly, however, retires to the country to prepare himself to receive the grace of baptism and to baptize with Olypius, his friend, and his son, Idiotatis, <coughs> at Ostia, on his way to Africa. And his mother, Monica, dies in her 56th year, and her vision that I talked about earlier of how she would not die until the Lord saved Augustine, she got to see that come to pass. Before she died, she got to see her son converted. Um, and then the last chapters of his confessions are him talking about his mom and then talking about his writings and views, but I don't get into that now. I have a couple of things that I want to bring up. Um, things and signs. So this is one of the first things that I read of Augustine directly was in one of his works called On Christian Doctrine, where he talks about <clears throat> everything can be broken up into two categories, things and signs. There are things and signs. Things are objects. Things are given for, uh, for use and enjoyment. So, distinction, there are things and there are signs. And I was looking at what things are. Things are for two There two things for things. <laughs> use and enjoyment. But the only object of enjoyment given to us is God himself. And so all things, everything in this whole entire world is given to us, not for the enjoyment in and of itself, but for use. So think about a practical example like sports. Sports are things that God has created that are good because God has created them. But the moment that we begin to enjoy things in and of themselves, he says, it's called idolatry because that is not a use. You're not using these things. You're abusing them. Um, he says the only object, the only thing that is truly for our enjoyment is God himself. Everything else is to be used to the end of enjoying God. And so it's a beautiful way in which we live. We intake everything around us sacramentally. We look around the trees and the earth and the mountains and the oceans and we see that I am not going to enjoy these things in and of themselves for their own sake, but use them to the enjoyment of God himself, who is beauty, who is goodness, who is truth. And so the use of the physical and temporary things is that we may enjoy God and know him more. Signs now are things that point or signify other than themselves. A sign is a thing which, over and above impression, it makes in the senses, causes something else to come into the mind as a consequence of itself. And this leads me to Augustine's understanding of Scripture. So everything is, a, is either a thing or a sign. And signs point. Signs are things that point to something other than themselves. And so Augustine talks about how words, words are signs. When I am speaking or when you read a word and you read the word bear, it's not an actual bear, it's a sign pointing to something other than itself, of a bear. And so, it says, the words in Scripture are signs. The aim of Scripture is the building up of the church in the virtues of faith, hope, and love. Scripture is about love of God and love of neighbor. And he says, any passage outside of the twofold love 
is figural is a sign pointing to the great realities of who God is and to the end of building us up in faith, hope, and love. Which brings us to his hermeneutic of the quadriga. This is a picture of a four-horse chariot. That's what the word quadriga means. So this is Augustine's hermeneutic. This is the way that he viewed Scripture, and I think there's a lot to be harvested from this. He looked at Scripture as having four senses, four meanings given by the four horse chariots. And so if you ever think about a car, if you take one wheel off of a car, it leads to something not good. And so here are the four senses of Scripture. There's first the historical literal, and this refers to the text and event. So, for example, Jerusalem as just a Middle Eastern city, no more. And now the other sense of Scripture, the first of the three spiritual senses is allegorical. Jerusalem is an allegory for all God's people. This is doctrine. It builds up the virtue of faith. The third, or the second spiritual sense, is the tropological sense of Scripture. Jerusalem as human soul, duty, what we are to do in response to what God has said, also known as application. This builds up the virtue of love. And the third spiritual sense of Scripture is the anagogical sense. It is the eschatological Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and this builds the virtue of hope. I think that that is beautiful. Um, so yeah, there's a lot here, um, but that's all I have for you guys today on St. Augustine, who had the influence of all the Western society to come. <clears throat>